I want to begin with an old joke of mine. I hope you noticed that I joined the applause. And if you know a little bit my work, you know that I use often this example. Uh, why? Because I always distrusted the notion of totalitarianism. I'm not trying to save communism in comparison with fascism, that it's somehow better. I'm just saying that one should be very attentive to the distinctions between the two. What always fascinated me, I'm sorry if some of you know this example of mine, is this. Look at the old documentaries. You find all of them today on YouTube. When a fascist leader, after finishing his speech, receives applause, he just stands and receives the applause. A Stalinist leader always joins the applause. <laughs> it's a totally different subjective position. The message of, and this doesn't make it any better, the message of Stalinist leader is, I'm one of you. It's not really about me. We all serve the cause. You know where you can find this difference also? I was shocked, and this is not, again, communist propaganda. On the contrary, I uh, found this detail in a book very critical of Gulag, simply the title is Gulag and Applebaum. You know that in Gulag, uh, every year on Stalin's birthday, they gathered all the inmates who had to sign a telegram of congratulations to Comrade Stalin, wishing him all the best, and so on and so on. Of course, it was a ridiculous ritual. It was not serious. But the point is, why this ritual? Because just think about it. You cannot even imagine such a ritual in Nazism. To, on Hitler's birthday, to gather all the inmates of Auschwitz and make them sound, sign a congratulation message to Hitler, it's meaningless. Another point, the Stalinist show trials, you know where the tortured prisoners admit, yes, I uh, collaborated in a plot to overthrow and kill Comrade Stalin. Such a thing doesn't, cannot happen, doesn't have any place in the Nazi or fascist universe. Hitler could have easily done the same. Select some visi visible uh, important Jewish figures and claim there is a plot again and they, you torture them to confess. It's meaningless. Why? Because, and that's the tragedy, I'm not saying which one is better. Because in Nazism, that's the horror of it, apropos Jews, they are guilty directly for what they are. All you have to prove is that they are Jews. You then have to prove what they plan to do and so on. On the other hand, what makes Stalinism so mysterious almost is that uh, these Stalinist enforced confessions project onto the prisoners a strange duality. You are, and they used all these terrifying terms, the Stalinist, scum of the earth, shit, and so on. But at the same time, they admitted, acknowledged to every accused prisoner the right, as it were, to step on his, her shoulders and objectively pass a judgment on his, her own betrayal. For example, the great Stalinist trials. You have there Bukharin, I, I don't know the big traitors for them. 
The prosecutor asked them, how did you become an enemy of the people? And as if from a totally objective position, they begin with, already as a young kid, I was educated by my parents to hate the working class and to enjoy exploiting them, whatever. But you see the paradox. You are pure shit, nobody, but at the same time you still participate in universal reason, reason from where you can see what shit you are. In this sense, Stalinism is much more than fascism. What the Frankfurt School, Adorno and Horkheimer, uh, called dialectic of enlightenment. That is to say, the terrifying, totalitarian, oppressive, however you call it, consequences, implications of enlightenment itself. But I don't want to get lost in all this. The reason I got lost in this little improvisation is just to let you know how I like to proceed. Take some small, insignificant details. Oh, my God. Look Stalin's documentary. He stands up and joins the applause. Hitler doesn't. And this is for me the proper Freudian reading, through this type of details. And then from this you pass or you see the universal feature at its, at its, in its abstraction, precisely. But let's not get lost. Let me begin with our era. I, first, I planned a more theoretical lecture, pure philosophy. Then, when Russell, to whom, apart from all of you, the department, I'm very grateful to be here, and I'm proud to be here, and I will tell you why. For the last two decades, at least, this is my experience. I'm not just kissing your ass here in a vulgar way. Uh, the, my experience is that the big universities, Princeton, Harvard, they're full of shit, basically. <laughs> they think they're the center of the world, but not like Harvard thinks they are the focus, the center of liberalism. They are totally non-productive. Nothing interesting happens here. And I think in places like yours here, or where my good friend, who is also here, uh, Todd McGowan, uh, uh, in Vermont, from Vermont, and so on, in these apparently marginal places, the true breakthroughs are taking place today. Okay, they, I'm not saying they necessarily do. What I'm saying is uh, the space in these slightly marginal places is much more open to true discoveries, at least in humanities. So, uh, it will be a little bit more mixed with politics and popular examples, just to make it possible to follow. I would like to begin with a wonderful technological invention, I read about it, which I think serves as the best metaphor maybe for where we are today in ideology. In our age of ideological decay, when inconsistency is less and less considered a reproach, uh, we don't have, uh, we found uh, an example of this inconsistency, of coincidence of the opposites, even in domains where one would least expect it. Like, is there anything more brutal and destructive than a direct military attack, shooting at something? Yes, of course it is, chemical and nuclear attack. But for most of us, shooting at the enemy is still the paradigm of aggression. 
Should we then be surprised that the U.S. military, and I'm not here engaged in U.S. bashing, uh, I think that today there are others who are even, in spite of Trump, worse than United States, but nonetheless, the U.S. military is now searching for this is real, what I will read you, but it's so incredible. Searching for bullets which would be biodegradable and contain seeds for new plants to grow where the bullet hits the ground. Here is a report. Forgive me this long quote. Firearms are an accepted part of modern warfare and military operations, but after the job is done, the environment suffers. Not only do spent shells and casings litter the landscape, but they can also prove to be a hazard to local wildlife, not to mention the impact that chemical residues, such as bullet metals and rust, can have on future plant growth and sustainability. The U.S. military recognizes that this is a problem and is now asking for proposals to mitigate the issue through biodegradable bullets and ways to seed growth as operations in the field continue. Back in January 2017, the U.S. Department of Justice sent out a public request for proposals to develop biodegradable ammunition loaded with specialized seeds to grow environmentally beneficial plants that eliminate ammunition debris and contaminants. This effort will make use of seeds to grow environmentally friendly plants that remove soil contaminants and consume the biodegradable components developed under these projects. Animals should be able to consume the plants without any ill effects. End of quote. So these bullets are first to be used for training. And then, I like this dream, imagine bombing a country to make it green, you know, like, <laughs> then full of plants, no waste left on the ground. The same structure, the thing itself is the remedy against the threat it poses, is widely visible in today's ideological landscape. Tell the figure of the financier and philanthropist, for example, I appreciate him otherwise, George Soros. Soros stands on the one hand for the most ruthless financial speculative exploitation, but it's combined with its counter-agent, the humanitarian worry about catastrophic social consequences of the unbridled market economy. Even his daily routine, I read, is marked by a self-eliminating counterpoint. Half of Swiss working time is devoted to financial speculations and the other half to humanitarian activities, such as providing finances for cultural and democratic progress, uh, uh, for writing essays and books and so on. So, and I think the two faces of Bill Gates parallel the two faces of Soros. First, we have Gates, the cruel businessman who destroys or buys out competitors aimed at virtual monopoly, employs all the tricks of the trade to achieve his goals. Meanwhile, the other side is the greatest philanthropist in the history of humanity who asks, it's a quote, what does it serve to have computers if people do not have enough to eat and are dying of dysentery and so on and so on. So again, 
I like this idea how uh, a, an activity includes in its own counterpoint. I hope you see the parallel. It's the same at bullets, which at the same time uh, uh, cause the greening. How? Okay, Bill Gates can be a ruthless competitor, but at the same time, my God, he gives so much to humanitarian help and so on and so on and so on. So, uh, 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 how does this strange paradoxical situation, how does it condition our ideological thinking? You, your conclusion may be, but wait a minute, today we live in a post-ideological era, it's pure cynicism, who cares about ideology, and uh, nobody really believes in it, and so on and so on. One has to be much more specific here. First, we should always remember that, because my idea is that we never lived in an era which is so truly radically ideological than our era today, precisely because apparently nobody believes in it. But you know, belief is a very paradoxical structure. Allow me, even if some of you maybe know these old jokes of mine, allow me a brief improvisation. What does it mean to believe? There is one lesson from Marx, and I'm not trying to brainwash you, I'm very critical of Marx when, where one needs to be. But in his well-known theory of commodity fetishism from the beginning of Capital, Marx discovered something that I think is more actual today than it ever was. His idea of fetishism is not the usual illusion, like on the market we are dealing in social exchange, but in our misperception, we think money is something magical, we think we are in a domain of, in a magical domain, and so on. Marx is saying almost the exact opposite, if you read him closely. We are cynics today, we don't believe. But the belief is in our acts, in our activity. The ideal fetishist illusion is not in our mind. In our mind, we know there is nothing magic about money. Money just gives us part, uh, uh, access to part of the social product and so on and so on. The illusion is in what we do, how we act in our social life, participating in the market exchange and so on and so on. If you allow me to repeat an old joke of mine, which I think only in the United States I used, I would say, between 40 and 50 times. <laughs> But it's too perfect not to use it. I'm sorry if you know it. It's a well-known, sorry, but nervous sticks and so on. Uh, it's a wonderful joke about Niels Bohr, you know, the Copenhagen guy. He had a house in the countryside, an old house to retreat in his holidays, for holidays and free weekends. And there, above the entrance to the house, was a horseshoe. I don't know how it is with you, but in Europe, a horseshoe is a superstitious sign. The idea is that it keeps the evil spirits from entering the house. So that's the anecdote. A friend visited him, a fellow scientist, and asked him, but wait a minute, you are a scientist. Why do you have this bullshit there? You know, like, do you believe in it? 
Niels Bohr answers me, because I'm not an idiot, of course, I don't believe in it, I'm a scientist. Then the friend insists, but why do you have it there? I hope you know the brilliant answer. I have it there because although I don't believe in it, I was told that it works even if you don't believe in it. <laughs> That's ideology today. Nobody has to believe. Trump doesn't believe and so on. The illusion is in our acts. And I'm so sorry I don't have time to go in details here because a whole theory of ideology can be developed out of from this based on what I think is maybe the single greatest achievement contribution of American, by this I mean United States, culture to world civilization, at least in the 20th century, on your TV shows, you know, this can't laughter. Laughter is part of the soundtrack. Can you imagine what a magic, wonderful mechanism this is? Be careful and observe how it works. Those primitive behaviorists are totally wrong. Those who claim, oh, it's simply to automatically trigger your laughter. No, I read a good empirical analysis which claims over 90% of people do not laugh. But it has this wonderful magic effect, at least, okay, maybe I'm an idiot with me. I come home in the evening, uh, tired, I look at it, some stupid show, cheers, whatever, friends, and uh, the TV set laughs for me, and at the end I am relaxed as if I have laughed. It's a wonderful mechanism that we know from so-called primitive societies. You know, from Tibet, I was always fascinated by those praying wheels, or, you know, you write your prayer onto a piece of paper, you put it in, you turn it around, and then it doesn't matter. You can think about sex, whatever. Objectively, you are praying. <laughs> but they were maybe not so primitive. We are doing exactly the same thing. And uh, again, uh, the parallel between this and Marx is exactly in these displacements how uh, you can believe without believing. Subjectively, you can not believe, but objectively, in your activity, you believe. I think we should not underestimate the extent to which this functions today. People know that our votes are manipulated, that our justice is corrupted. Nonetheless, you act as if you uh, believe in it. And what fascinated me already when I was young, still living in a communist country, a relatively liberal one, but still a communist country, to what extent, at least in the last two decades of communism in ex-Yugoslavia, uh, not believing in the official ideology was not only no problem, they didn't care if you believe it or not, they went a step further, and they even considered, if they detected that you ser take seriously the Yugoslav communist ideology, that we have a specific self-management socialism, which is much better than Soviet bureaucratic socialism, 
It was considered dangerous to take it seriously. The idea was if you take it seriously, you will soon notice that things are not really like that. The idea is taking the official ideology seriously is the first step towards dissidence. So the idea was, it's a wonderful example of an ideology which worked on condition that it was not taken seriously. Okay, I don't want to get lost here. I want to go to the next step of, sorry, of where we are in ideology today. To locate it, you should always bear in mind that the function of ideology today is no longer to paint an idealized image, like, oh, the world is not as bad as you think, there is hope, we, uh, whatever. No, it's, uh, it's not even to oppress opposition. Police does that, social control, etc. It's, as my friend Alain Badiou put it some time ago, it's to kill hope. What does he mean by this? Uh, I'm, I'm shocked how when I debate with my enemies, for example, about ecology, threat of a new world war or whatever, I noticed how I don't have to convince them that we are really, sorry for the expression, in deep shit. They go even further than me. They said, yes, we agree. Probably we are ecologically lost. It's just a matter of 20 or 30 years and so on. Their message is just, but if we try to organize and change it, it will be even better. So again, it's just to convince you that bad as things are, we cannot really do anything. Next feature of ideology today is uh, that I think that, but don't be afraid, I have deep respect for Christianity. My God, I wrote three, four books on celebrating still the emancipatory dimension of Christianity, of course, I define myself as an atheist Christian. What this means, it's not time today to explain, but you know, Marx's well-known formula, religion is the opium of the people. I think that we have to correct Marx here a little bit. Yes, ideology is today the opium of the people, but we have today, I hope if you haven't heard already my joke, it's not a joke, I think it's very serious that you will get it. Uh, the joke that uh, uh, we have two new opiums of the people today. I hope you will guess which are they. Opium and the people. <laughs> On the one hand, we have the alt-right populism, which is precisely the people as the opium evoking the people, but in a false ideological way. The people as some imaginary unity, which then, in a half-fascist way, is always threatened by an external danger. It can be immigrants, the flow of immigrants, like now, the panic almost in the United States, at least in the right-wing media, of some poor 2,000 immigrants for Honduras. You know, this idea of we live in a privileged cupola, and uh, my God, there are leaks there uh, penetrating it. Uh, so we have... I will not go into it it's, uh, further, it's clearly what this... Uh, today's populism as the new opium. And it precisely serves as an opium. Opium in the sense of presenting you with a fascinating image of the enemy and you, you oh my God, that's it. 
external enemy and so on. The second opium is the opium itself, of course, in a broader sense. <clears throat> From the lowest level, all the drugs that we are taking to calm ourselves, to whatever, to, to, uh, to strengthen our desirable qualities, to slightly more serious ones, uh, Xanax, Prozac, all those psychodrugs, up to drugs as such, the real thing, crack, opium, whatever you want. Uh, and it's wonderful to study the logic here, the contradictory logic again. First, if you are overexcited, you take drugs, calmatives to bring peace. Then, of course, too much of this brings depression, and again you have to take drugs to revitalize your desire or whatever. The sad thing about this, and statistics are here incredible in our, I mean it ironically, degenerate circles of academia, I read somewhere that at least 70 to 80 percent professors, assistant students, are already on some kind of this type of psychodrugs, as if it's needed for our normal psychic reproduction to regulate it through, uh, to regulate it through, through uh, chemistry in some external artificial way. So again, <clears throat> What's the problem behind all this? The problem is, of course, that the ruling, if I may use this terribly sounding old-fashioned Marxist term, that the ruling ideological hegemony, this, let's call it, broad liberal consensus, is breaking down. And that's, for me, the true importance of Donald Trump. Not Trump as such, of course, he's the mega enemy, but what his rise means, what was breaking down that he was able to come. This is why it's against the background of this breaking consensus that we have this obsession with right-wingers and left-wingers, obsessions with the, obsession with the topic of fake news. Traditional liberal critics like to point out three events which combined bring about what they like to call even the death of truth. First, it is the rise of religious and ethnic fundamentalisms and its obvious stiff political correctness. I'm now reproducing there the centrist liberal view, which disavow rational argumentation and they ruthlessly manipulate data. Christian fundamentalists, it's their term, used positively, lie for Jesus. Like you are allowed to twist data if it serves our cause. But also politically correct leftists, at least in Europe, obfuscate news which show their preferred victims in a bad uh, side. For example, in Europe, and I oppose to this precisely because I 
try to do something for the refugees. You know, the liberal media, when there is some problem with Muslim immigrants, some rapes, violence, and so on, they say, let's not publish it, let's keep it down, and so on, and so on. Let's ignore it. I think this is a catastrophe, because then this is used by the writing media to say, you see how liberals try to whitewash it, and paranoia against refugees and immigrants is exploding. So, this rise of different types of fundamentalisms is the first element of the death of truth. Then there are the new digital media, which enable people to form communities defined by specific ideological interests. Communities where they can exchange news and opinions outside a unified public space, and where conspiracy theories and so on can flourish without constraints. Just look at the thriving neo-Nazi and anti-Semitic websites. And here, don't you think that you are the only bad guys? In Europe now, the situation is getting even worse. I found, when I was just browsing the web, three-fourth, well-organized, 10 hours, mini-series documentaries, which, not between the lines implicit, but fully, explicitly rehabilitate Hitler, they bring together all these elements which echo even a little bit in Jordan Peterson and so on. First, this idea of cultural Marxism, the idea that Frankfurt School and critical Western Marxism came to be because when communists realized in the early 20s that there will not be a communist revolution in Western Europe, they saw why this is happening. <clears throat> They saw that, uh, that's uh, alt-right reading, they saw that Christianity is too strong among ordinary people and that you only can have successful revolution if you first destroy the moral foundations of a society. That's why, and here comes the paranoia, Bolsheviks, Stalin and so on, directly through this detour of Argentina, financed Frankfurt School, Adorno, Horkheimer, and so on, to destroy moral foundations of the West. And then this culminates today with political correctness, transgender, and so on, and so on. So, uh, uh, again, it's horrifying to read it. And I don't know if you know these conspiracy theorists. The theorists, they are so crazy that they almost, but it's horrible, it's a dangerous game to play, they almost fascinate me, you know. For example, according to these theorists, this idea that Middle East is in a conflict, Jews against Palestinians, they claim this is just a false conflict to, to seduce us. They claim that in reality they are working together, to destroy Western Europe. What's their proof? They claim, okay, immigrants are penetrating Muslim immigrants Europe. But they say, this cannot happen by itself. This is not spontaneous. This is incidentally where those leftists who claim Palestinians are today's Jews or immigrants, the foreigner to be excluded, are, are wrong. Because Jews in the Nazi imaginary were by definition more or less invisible. They were the secret masters. While refugees are all too visible. We are obsessed with how they just walk with their uh, women faces hidden along our streets. So uh, 
they claim that they are too visible, so there must be a secret master behind them. And these are Jews, of course. So they claim it's a shared Muslim-Jewish plot to destroy our civilization. What I'm saying is uh, something very simple. It's that, and everybody knows it, what happened in the last 10, 15 years is that this kind of conspiracy theories were all the time here. But what's so sad is that what was still now constrained to this, we go after a talk like this today, to, to, to a bar, restaurant, and all the dirty talk, rumors, you exchange Now it's becoming part of our public space. The third figure to blame for the so-called death of truth is the legacy, so they claim, liberals who bemoan the death of truth, of postmodern deconstructionism and its historicist relativism. They attack the claims that there is no objective truth valid for all, that every truth relies on a specific horizon and is rooted in a subjective standpoint that depends on power relations and that the greatest ideology is precisely the claim that we can step out of it and look at things Objectively, they claim opposite to this historicist deconstructionist relativism as they read it that we can look at things objectively, there is objective truth, and so on and so on. Uh, so, what's my problem with this? And of course, the standard target here is you remember that I always forget her name. Conway something, that blonde lady who is one of Trump's assistants, she used the misfortunate, the unfortunate term alternate facts. And they emphatically say, no, there are no alternate facts. There may be alternate opinions, theories, but facts are facts. Holocaust happened and so on and so on. But I think I'm not a relativist, absolutely not. But things are a little bit more complex here. The first thing to notice, I wonder if you will agree with me, in my perverse taste, I did read some of uh, Holocaust revisionist deniers. And correct me if I am wrong, not one of them argues as a postmodern deconstructionist. No, your theory of Holocaust, who knows what happens, is just your discursive contract and so on. Go, go uh, Go to the YouTube and... Google or whatever, David Irving, maybe the best-known Holocaust revision. No, he strictly argues as the best British empiricist. They had so many Owens in Auschwitz and so on, and even if they were burning all the time, they could have burned maximum 300,000 of Jews, not two million or whatever. So that's the first point, but it doesn't mean a lot. My basic point is that... It's difficult to accept it, but data are a vast and impenetrable domain. And we have to accept, this does not mean some cheap relativism, that we always approach data from what philosophical hermeneutics calls a certain horizon of understanding, privileging some data and omitting others. All our histories are precisely that, stories, a, a combination of selected data into consistent 
narrative. For example, I will give you a provocative example. Don't be afraid, my conclusion will not be relativist. Uh, I can write a book and I can guarantee you every detail will be, every, all data will be true. Convincingly demonstrating that Hitler was justified in bemoaning the excessive influence of Jews in Germany in the late 20s and early 1930s, it's simply true. 40% of lawyers in Germany, at least in big cities, were Jews. Jews were extraordinarily influential in cinema as journalists and so on and so on, in art and so on and so on. So, again, all these data are true. And what should we do? If you say, but we need other data which are more valid and so on, you already need a certain theoretical frame to say this, and we should say this. That would be my point. Let me repeat another old story of mine that I like to repeat. I'm sorry if you heard it. I think it's extremely useful precisely today. This Lacan's, Jacques Lacan's, our, my psychoanalytic teacher, paradoxical statement, but very precise, that uh, imagine I'm sorry for the male chauvinist twist of this statement. Imagine a husband who is pathologically jealous of his wife, obsessed with the idea that she is all the time sleeping around with other men and so on. And Lacan says something wonderful. He says his jealousy is pathological even if everything that he says is true about his wife. Why? Simply because uh, the true question is not, is his wife really like that? The true question is, and therein resides the pathology, why does he need jealousy to sustain his self-identity? And it's the same with Jews for the fascists. Don't misunderstand me. Of course, they are mostly telling lies. But I'm saying the moment... You accept debate at this level, and aren't Germans exaggerating a little bit? Jews are not really like that. You sell your soul to the devil. Because the point is not, are Jews really like that? The point is, why do the Nazis, in order to sustain their vision of society, organic community where antagonisms can explode only if they are imported by foreign bodies from outside. Why do they need the figure of the Jew to maintain their vision of society? Uh, so, that's my point here. The most efficient lies are lies with truth. Lies with, which reproduce only factual data. Uh, I don't, I'm not saying by this that truth should be relativized. I mean, Holocaust happened, absolutely, no doubt. I'm just saying that in a proper dialectical approach, it's wrong to oppose in this rude way the data and our interpretation of them. The correct horizon conceptual field, and so on, from which we interpret data 
is not just our subjective choice. It's part of the object itself. This is a very Hegelian notion that how we read facts, it's not our subjectivity, it's inscribed into facts themselves. In what sense? Let's take precisely anti-Semitism. The way you interpret the presence of Jews in Germany in the 19, late 1920s. Either you say, oh, these are foreigners who destroy our community, or you say, fascists construct them as threat to justify their dictatorship and so on. This is precisely conditioned by the objective social situation of those who read, of those who read the data uh, those who read the data in this way. What this approach enables us, for example, apropos of anti-Semitism, is to say, and here I avoid relativism, anti-Semitism, for this reason, is, and other racisms, don't be afraid, I'm critical of Zionism and so on, very much. I even, probably they will prohibit me to enter Israel soon. I support, in a very moderate way, BDS. But I'm totally allergic, because we do have it now in Europe, real old-fashioned anti-Semitism again. What I'm saying is that uh, anti-Semitism is wrong a priori, formally, absolutely. You know what I'm saying? It's not a question of, okay, Hitler was a little bit right, maybe there were too many Jews in culture, whatever, in, 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 among journalists, but he exaggerated. No, no, he was absolutely wrong. In what sense? Wrong because, not because how he distorted facts. He was wrong even if he didn't, but he did distort Facts. He was wrong because the way he used facts was in order to sustain a general lie about society, obfuscating its antagonisms and so on and so on. So uh, uh, this is a very dialectical notion of truth, but not mystical. That uh, Again, you can use correct data to serve a lie. And... Uh, how do you measure? Now you will tell me, okay, but I am naive here. How do I know what is lie and what is not? Don't I reserve for myself the position of standing outside and, oh, I know this is a lie? No, I can measure it immanently. If you analyze closely the Nazi edifice, you can see that their anti-Semitism is immanently a lie. Immanently in the sense that it obfuscates certain social antagonisms, and this obfuscation is inscribed into the very way they formulate anti-Semitism, and so on and so on. So my conclusion here, not to get lost here, is that that, uh, the idea that, and that's the difficult thing for some partisans of positive objective truth to accept, Another great lesson of Marxism, and despite of all horrors that Marxism called, I'm the first to admit it. Uh, This is another important lesson of Marxism, actual today, is that uh, interest and being interested or engaged and objective truth are not 
mutually exclusive. There are some truths, in plural, to which we have access only through an existential engagement. I will not lose time here with this too much, just to warn you, to let you know what I aim at, that paradoxically uh, here, and I don't hold this as an argument neither against Marx or against religion, Marx reproduced here what I consider the most subversive things about an authentic religion. You know, for an authentic religion, and I think there is nothing obscurantist in this, it's wrong to say, I respect God, I believe in God, because I looked at the arguments, and my God, I was convinced that whichever religion you choose, Judaism, Islam, Christianity, Buddhism, which is not a religion, they convinced me. No, as Kierkegaard put it nicely, uh, the true religious position is not, my God, Christianity has the best arguments, I believe in it. It's only by being a Christian I can understand correctly the arguments for Christianity. You will say, I'm dreaming here. No, I will give you another example. I hope you will like it, because it's from our ordinary life. Doesn't love function like this? Yes, you can say, again, as a man, heterosexual, I'm sorry to adopt this automatic male chauvinist perspective, but uh, I can say I fell in love with that lady because of whatever, her nice smile, her witty character, her hair, even as Trump said in obscene way about Ivanka, she has beautiful legs. <laughs> Look at her legs. Uh, yes, true, but in authentic love, it's not that you look around and then notice, oh, that lady has nice legs, nice smile, nice breasts, let's make a list, none other, so I will fall in love. No. In a way, only once you are in love, you can enumerate reasons why, why you are in love. That's why there are other wonderful notions here of critique of ideology to be developed. That's why, uh, that's why uh, 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 falling in love, did you notice this? It's a wonderful temporality. Never happens in a present time. You never can say, now I'm falling in love. If you do, it's a fake. It's, uh, it's always that retroactively, all of a sudden, you establish, my God, I'm deep in it. I fall in love. And here, I characterize myself as an atheist Christian, uh, fully endorsing this lesson of Christianity, that uh, uh, also in Freud you find it, that here I'm against this ideology of free choice, you know. Freedom at its fundamental, the most radical freedom, is not free choice in this cheap sense, I go, to a, I go to a delicatess store and my God, strawberry cake, lemon cake, chocolate cake, I can make a choice. No, free, the truly free choice is unconscious choice, as German idealists around Hegel, Schelling, and so on, already knew it. Free choice is a choice in a much more radical way. It's a choice of what you are, and it cannot be experienced as a free choice. That's why, as, again, 
my friend, with whom I have some problems, but we are still friends. Alain Badiou pointed out, referring to this beautiful, his short book on love is translated, I think, in English. His, a, a beautiful short book where he points out this wonderful occurrence of the verb fall in love. It works, as far as I know, only in English and in French. Maybe in some others, in my language, it doesn't work. Tomber uh, amoureux, uh, to fall in love. And he says we have to take this quite literally. There is a surprise, a cut, you fall in love. All of a sudden, you find yourself in love. That's how things uh, happen. So, not to get lost, uh, uh, let's go on. I think there is another thing in this, that is false in this panic about fake news, multiple truth, and so on. If you read closely those who worry about it, they repeatedly uh, emphasize between the lines, but they do that. What they worry about is not so much that we don't have any truth, but that we no longer have a clear hegemonic idea, a basic social pact accepted by all across the board. So their position of those who bemoan we need an obligatory social frame, it's a very cynical one, basically. What they are saying is what Goethe, the writer, Faust, and so on, a great conservative, said in German, uh, besser Unrecht als Unordnung, better injustice than chaos. The idea is that we have to impose one version of ideology which will bring a certain stability, even if we all know it's a lie. And uh, what is so uh, uh, enigmatic here with this one version and so on is that the consequences on, of it for democracy, because as many intelligent observers have demonstrated, democracy is nice, competition, alternate pretenders to power and so on, but democracy only works against the background of a whole set of agreements. Not only this obvious agreement, whoever wins, I recognize it, in spite of all the manipulations, but certain basic values have to be shared and so on and so on. When social, ideological, religious, whatever, differences between ways of life get too strong, you cannot play democracy. Democracy, in the formal sense of majority wins, have to be replaced by some type of uh, negotiation and compromise. For example, today's conflict between Palestinians and Jews, you cannot make general elections there. It has to be, it has to be a compromise. And I think that this is why you, in the United States are now maybe in, a, maybe in a difficult moment, a very difficult moment. I think that the differences now between alt-right or the fundamentalist Trump people and liberal democratic consensus are growing so strong that you are reaching slowly the point of no 
compromise. Like, one has to win or there is war or whatever. It will be, I warn you, less and less possible to resolve this in the good old formal democratic way. And this is clear to Trump. Did you notice how he systematically lays the foundations prepares the public for an emergency state. Like, all the time he's making statements which basically hint that. Like, even now, he gave such statements, be, beware of the false uh, electoralists, and so on and so on. You know, he's breaking this basic consensus which says, of democracy, which is, we can complain that it was manipulated, and so on and so on. But we have to accept this un conditional rule. Whoever wins, he or she or they, they win. We can complain, but the result is here. Even if it's ambiguous. Although I'm very critical of Bill Clinton. When it was that Florida scandal, you remember, Bush or Al Gore, a couple of tens of votes decided. Bill Clinton made, my God, this guy, I'm very much against him, critical, but he has some spirit. You remember what he said. He said, American people have spoken, we just don't know what they said. <laughs> there is some spirit in this. <laughs> no, no. So, again, what I'm saying is that beneath this abstract problem, truth and so on, uh, is there uh, one truth? We have to accept it that truth is not simply objective truth. What a well-functioning society needs Sorry, I will try. Oh, my God, the time is running. Okay, I will condense it. So at least that I will finish with the word Beckett or whatever. <laughs> okay, sorry, let me go on. Let me go on. Nonetheless, I will try to condense it. I got lost. Okay. Uh, know that we shouldn't speak about objective truth. We should speak about a basic customs, social pact which is not only a pact at the level of explicit political rules. It's also a pact at the level which is much more important. And here Trump, I must say, is almost a genius. A pact at the level of not only explicit rules, but a thick network of implicit rules of how you practice explicit rules, how you do it. Trump is a master not so much of breaking the explicit rules, but breaking these implicit customs which regulated the use of... Remember the Supreme Kavanaugh justice. If, uh, and I think Obama was here too careful. Obama could have nominated much earlier. But he respected too much the rules. No, we don't do it like that in the United States and so on. Trump doesn't have problems with this. He breaks these implicit rules all the time. Okay, let's go on. So now I'm coming finally to my big topic. I will really, if you uh, give me a little bit more time, try to condense it. The problem of abstraction. Because the lesson of what I was saying here, I go a little bit fast, even if it's a rough jump now, just to be able to squeeze in everything, is that uh, uh, the truth is not holistic, all sides, and so on. What we have to accept is that the truth is always partial one-sided. For example, with all my, again, support for Palestinians, but 
in Germany 1933. It was totally false to say, okay, we have two partial extremes, the Nazis, the Jews. The truth must be somewhere in the middle. Let's look, no. The only way to arrive at the truth, the horror, what was happening there in Germany, is to look at it from the standpoint of victims. The truth was on their side. In this sense, we need abstraction. What do I need, I mean by abstraction? I go a little bit quickly here just to point it out. Uh, The first approach to abstraction. Uh, LGBT plus. I'm sorry if some of you know this line of mine. Uh, Not only I'm not opposed to it, I deeply support it, but maybe with a twist, which, as some of you maybe know, brought me a lot of trouble. Uh, I'm saying this. What is the function of that plus, LGBT plus? As a speculative Hegelian philosopher, I would have said I'm against this simple empiricist use of it. Mostly LGBT people, but not all. There are some very intelligent that, with true speculative spirit. Most of them take it at a simple, sorry, empirical level. Like, we have these, that, queer, boots, whatever, 35, 40 positions, but we have to be open, maybe we missed still some positions. So, plus means we are not excluding any others. All the others the place should be kept open for them. But I think there is another much more wonderful reading proposed by some LGBT theorists themselves that what if we claim that plus, being a plus, that void, more, is a position in itself. You can be a plus. How? Precisely by radically... Questioning your position, plus is the best definition of feminine hysteria. And hysteria is here not meant in this patriarchal way of uh, arrogance or hysterical women, they don't know what they want. No, hysteria is in authentic Freudian way the most uh, subversive position, not perversion. Perverts are always the observe, the, sorry, obverse secret side of power. Hysteria means what? You know Althusser's, Louis Althusser, the old Marxist, notion of ideological interpolation. Ideology works so that an authority or society tells you you are this, gives you a symbolic identity in the social edifice. You are a man, a woman, even homosexual, professor, uh, socialist, alt-right, whatever. You are given an identity. And the basic hysterical question is, why am I what you are telling me that I am? This doubt directed not so much at objects, but who am I? This lack of position of your own subjective identity. And I think it can be shown that this uh, openness about your own position, I don't know what an object I am, which concretely in the case of hysteria means... I see a desire out there. I'm some kind of object of desire for others, but I don't know what they see in me. This uncertainty, ontological, is, for Freud, Lacan, and so on, constitutive of subjectivity. The moment you think you know what you are, you are not a subject, you are an object. 
And the model of this is a pervert. Perverts always know what they are and what they have to do. They don't question their, uh, they don't, uh, question their position. So now I have to, unfortunately, cut it short because what I wanted to show you was how this abstraction, this you want something but you don't know what, this imperfection, ontological openness, is constitutive of subjectivity, as I already said, in the sense that uh, it's not simply kind of a misrecognition and so on, but uh, it's a positive constituent of subjectivity. Subject involves an abstraction. This is the limit of the standard historicist approach. You know, like always historicize, reduce an element to its historical uh, constellation, specific constellation and so on. But in authentic vision, even of Marx himself, not to mention many others, abstraction can also be a historical fact. (laughs) Abstraction is not just there is out there full reality and we getting to know it abstract some features. Abstraction is a feature of reality itself. That's what also Marx means by, by bourgeois subjectivity. Marx is interested not only in the fact that abstraction of money rules our societies, but that in a developed bourgeois society, and this is not just a critical point, for Marx, the only path to freedom is through this abstraction. For Marx, in bourgeois society, you yourself, in your most intimate self-experience, relate to yourself as an abstract individual. And I tried to convince once Judith Butler, and I think I almost succeeded, that she is a good Cartesian. That the whole point, in this sense, that her entire, I use the naive term, it's not a good one, anthropology, is anthropology of, you know, this idea that there is no fixed identity of a subject, subject, Subjectivity is constructed through repetitive, performative games, and so on. This precisely presupposes that at the most basic level, you are not defined by certain features, positive features, but precisely by the fact that every feature is mediated. You are not that. That abstraction is described For example, in the logic of desire, when objects of desire are no longer prescribed, like it's normal to be heterosexual, whatever, and so on, even if it's done in a more complex psychoanalytical way. You search for women, but in the end, you search for the image of your mother or whatever, those stupidities. Here, the object of desire is always prescribed. But the Freudian idea is, no, it's again, objects, 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 plus. And you have this plus over all objects, particular, becomes for Lacan a specific object he calls objects mollet, the object cause of desire. So let me give you, give me, who are the boss? You are the boss. 
squeeze the bottles. Can I get another good five minutes? If... Okay, okay. Uh, I somehow, I was ready to tell you, if you would say no, I would say fuck off, throw me the... <laughs> I mean, yeah. This was a purely rhetorical question. You know? yeah. Okay, so let me go on. You know, I will try to give you an idea of the power of this abstraction, which I use already in one of my books. You haven't read it, probably. Uh, in a wonderful passage of Marcel Proust's In Search of Lost Time, Marcel, not Proust, but the hero of the novel, speaks for the first time with his grandmother in Paris. And for the first time, he hears her voice, torn out, abstracted from the totality of her body. You know, it's before he thought my grandmother is a wonderful old being, oh my God, what a wonderful figure. Now that he hears her voice alone, he is all of a sudden struck by the idea of what a vulgar common voice this is. Before it was covered by her gentle appearance and so on. And now comes the true achievement. So first we have this violent abstraction. Voice alone, horror. Dirty old lady, confused. Uh, then, when he visits her in Paris, this abstracted voice colors his entire perception of her. There is no return to, oh, but this, to organic unity. Oh, but this voice was just one of the features. Now I see all of it. No. Uh, even her other features become vulgar, common to him. That's how dialectical analysis does. The only totality that you get is the totality based on, so, on some brutal, violent abstraction. Out of this abstraction, all other things appear in a new way. So, uh, uh, to amuse you a little bit, I tried to do the same thing with uh, some movie stars. You know, this usual universality of a movie star is so-called screen persona. It's not what the actor really is, who cares? It's also not the roles he plays, but through the roles a certain character emerges, like James Stewart plays a certain guy, and so on and so on. But I think a very productive procedure is to take a role which runs against the grain of a screen persona and read it as the key to the actor's actual persona. Then it spoils everything. For example, Henry Fonda. I don't know how much you know cinema history. One of his last roles in the Sergio Leone Western One Upon the Time in the West was, I think, his defining role. It was the first role of a truly bad guy, sadistic killer. But if you tear out this role and then look at his other roles, through the, you can then find arrogant, uncanny features, like when he plays Abraham Lincoln, the young Lincoln. You can see arrogance there and so on. Or my example that I took, I hope I will not hurt you, is uh, Tom Cruise. Did you see Magnolia? 
Where Cruz plays that extremely vulgar guy who wants to teach how to fuck them. That's the only thing that makes... I claim maybe this is the key. And you should read all his other... You know, I think this is, again, the proper dialectical approach. And now, if you allow me just seriously the finale, I will try to be very brief. The great writer of this type of violent abstraction is Samuel Beckett. Uh, what Beckett does is, on the one hand, it's worth reading it. I mean, I'm really a partisan here. For me, I'm sorry to disappoint you, the enemy is James Joyce. Pretentious, boring, idiot. Don't tell me that you read... Yeah, sorry, okay. <laughs> Don't tell me that you read Finnegan. It's so pretentious. I mean, this idea of 400 years people will have to... And I know I'm going here against Lacan. Okay, but let me commit you what I like about Beckett. Uh, uh, for a partisan of standard Marxist notion of concrete analysis, the idea is Beckett is very anti-Marxist. He always abstracts from a concrete situation. But this abstraction is always inscribed into a concrete situation. Let me take a, let me take a, a wonderful example. Uh, take his Malone dice. It's, uh, I forgot the lady's name, I'm very sorry, but I recently read a book which is already was written uh, by Emily Morin, yes, is the lady, about Beckett and politics. And he conclusively demonstrates how Beckett was extremely grounded in a historical experience. For example, Malone dies. It's full of implicit references to a specific situation at the end of the World War II, when all those refugees, wartime prisoners were returning, all that situation and so on. And uh, Beckett, but Beckett abstracts from it to a kind of a, almost, I would say, from all this idea of homeless, refugees, the way they are treated bureaucratically and so on, I'm almost tempted to say he's a materialist Platonist. What he stages is a kind of a pure platonic idea of this terror of being displaced. And it's wrong to translate it back into historical constellation. Only through this move of abstraction do you get, in a way, the truth on it. This is why I wanted to conclude by... He, my, I think you mentioned it to your students already, his late play, Catastrophe. It's a wonderful play. It's just from six till 20 minutes, however it is staged. It, it abstracts from, it condenses three levels. One level is about a communist political terror. Uh, 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 an arrested guy is questioned, and so on, brutally interrogated. But then, in the play itself, this is staged. What happens on the stage is a director giving 
precise instructions to the author and his secretary how to do it, do it like this and so on, reproducing the same terror. And then you have a third level, that's how we should read the end of the play, where the, not the hero, the victim, the guy who is brutally interrogated, just raises his head and looks at us, the viewers. And Beckett explicitly said that's the ultimate image, that with many of these humanitarian events, solidarity with victims, performances for, the same basic terror structure is reproduced. This is Beckett at his greatest. He does not, he goes a step further into abstraction. Again, it's not just this rather vulgar comparison that a brutal staging can also reproduce terror. It's precisely the falsity of our humanitarian sympathy and so on and so on that the same, again, the same abstraction is uh, reproduced. And I think what we need today in all these human rights debates and so on and so on is precisely this type of Beckettian abstraction, how our very humanitarian care, help, and so on can reproduce the same form of horror. Let me give you one example, and with this I will really uh, conclude, of this horror. You know, our media are now full of that, uh, how do you pronounce the guy? No racist pan intendant, Khashoggi, Jamal, the uh, Saudi Arabian guy killed in, no? Uh, you know what I find a true scandal in it? Not the fact that, of course, it's terrifying what the Saudi Arabians did. But we get so excited about this one guy who was one of us, privileged, living in the United States, part of the royal family, you get in the media... While Saudi Arabia is systematically destroying an entire country, Yemen now, bombing children and so on, oh, that's, you don't talk about that. That's the true scandal of it. It's a totally displaced sympathy and so on. It's a nightmare. It embodies, again, everything that is false. So, more Beckett. And to apologize myself, of course, I exaggerated. But nonetheless, the Beckett that I really like is, if you ask me, Dubliners and Portrait of an Artist as a Young Man. Those theological debates about Aquinas' uh, aesthetics at the end of Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man are breathtaking. So, I exaggerate a little bit. I apologize. Uh, when I take power, the people through me to spoke, you will not be sent to Gulag. I promise you for <laughs> loving Joyce. Thank you very much for your kind. Thanks, Slavoj. Um, I... <laughs> I was kind of disappointed that you actually did get to Beckett at the end because I thought we, he was going to be in the real, we Don't can't approach it. But would have been a little bit too obvious Lacanian structure. No, the, <laughs> yeah. You know, sorry, I have to repeat, I'm sorry, you <laughs> provoked me. Another wonderful vulgar joke that I often quote, I'm sorry if you know it, from Soviet Union, you know that classical one about Lenin in Warsaw. 
You know, there is a big exhibition in Soviet Union, and there is a painting Lenin in Warsaw. And on the image you see Lenin's wife, Nadezhda Krupskaya, passionately making love to a young Komsomol member. And a shocked visitor said, oh my God, but where is Lenin here? And the guide calmly answers, well, Lenin is in Warsaw, no? <laughs> That's why she can do this here. So I would say Beckett, yes, like Beckett is in Warsaw, you know, and we can talk about it here. Sorry, yeah. Okay, we do have some time for, for a few questions. Um, and I'll ask Slavoj to try to be as brief as possible. And, and <laughs> you know what we'll get from me? I like to provoke this. I will give you this Buddhist wisdom answers, like clap with one hand or whatever. <laughs> okay, sorry, let's go on. I have, I, have this, I have this gavel here so that if you go on to... This, I actually got this in Ljubljana, so this has some sort, it'll still have some sort of essentialistic qualities. I, I bang this and then you... The joke about me is that the ideal seat for me would have been... You saw James Bond Goldfinger. You remember that car with the red button? And the, like, you need a red button if I talk too much, you press it. <laughs> okay. Uh, we have a mic in in the center, yeah. so um, it, it's if forever wants to ask the first question. Uh, we have questions. Okay, um, right here. Could you please go to the mic, and then Ruth will be next, just so everyone can can hear, and so Slavoj can hear the question. You mentioned cultural Marxism before. Yeah. Um, the alt-right loves to, loves to use that term. Yeah. I understand you believe it's a conspiracy theory. I do, too, to a certain sorry, extent. Sorry. No? I, okay. I, 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 you know, I, I understand you believe it's a conspiracy theory to a certain extent. You know, I believe that, too. But I'm just kind of wondering, the whole concept with identity politics, intersectionality, that all comes under yeah, yeah. cultural Marxism, basically. Do you find anything positive in any of those concepts? Yes, but first, what I disagree with is the very concept of, I think, culture, you need this idea that they wanted to undermine paternal authority and so on. Read the great studies by Adorno, Horkheimer, like Horkheimer wrote in late 30s a text on authority and family. And his whole point is not destroyed. He makes a wonderfully refined point that... Uh, it's a very deep insight in Adorno also that totalitarian structures like Nazi, Nazi, Hitler is not a paternal figure. And he openly says that a strong paternal figure can give to young boy a kind of a moral support to resist social oppression, to resist the totalitarian reader. So uh, uh, Adorno and Horkheimer are here much more refined and you absolutely cannot push them in this direction. And also, on the other hand, let's be serious. Uh, uh, sorry, uh, uh, in all real socialist, in all communist countries, I mean, uh, they were much, they were much more pro-family, to put it like that. And it was not only in the sense of we do it here, but let the West be decadent and so on. You know, know what shocked me so much? 
I'm old enough, unfortunately, I remember it. It's a bad example. In the late 50s, when the true Elvis Presley popularity exploded, uh, uh, in United States, uh, some conservatives were shocked that all those movement with hips, mm. this is return to barbarity and so on. But this was the reaction also of Soviet Union. They wrote in a total panic, Elvis Presley means we are returning to animality, end of civilization, and so on and so on. So I am also very critical of uh, uh, some aspects of LGBT and so on and so on. But I think that now, okay, I will give you an answer in a Marxist jargon. What I dislike in it was precisely that it's not really Marxism is a bourgeois obstacle against Marxism. I think that political correctness is for me a typical petit bourgeois excess which really, uh, uh, which really tries to continue to obfuscate economic issues. And in this sense, I'm simplifying it, and I will stop, not to lose time, that uh, I think that cultural Marxism, if by this we mean the culturalization of the left, from late 80s onwards. This is what enabled Trump. We all know, and in Europe, because the left, this postmodern left, which is terribly afraid to be connected with real working class. Mm -hmm. They like minorities, they like whatever, uh, 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 third world nations and so on. And uh, uh, they... Uh, they, of course, as we all know, they neglected your own working class. That's why today, and it's a tragedy in Europe, for example, which European party did most for actual working class in Europe now? It's horror. The uh, 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 law and justice, the Polish arch-conservative, uh, uh, Kaczynski, the brothers, one died, party, were precisely on behalf of right-wing populism. They did things that no moderate leftist today dared to do. They lowered retirement age. They expanded health care and so on. They, they made better credits for students and so on and so on. So in this sense, for me, it was, I support them totally, but it was an obscenity of, do you remember, two, three weeks, two, three months between before Trump was elected, the big topic in left liberal media was how to solve the problem of toilets with, with transgender people. Mm -hmm. Do we need unite toilet? Do we need more toilets? And so on and so on. I think that this total neglect of concerns of ordinary working people was a catastrophe. And that's why I like Bernie Sanders, because many intelligent people got it. He succeeded in mobilizing for the left those who otherwise would not have voted for Hillary, but maybe even for, for Donald Trump. So, okay, I didn't answer your question, but you see the That's direction. great. Yeah. <laughs> Thank, you. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Um, actually, wait. So, Ruth was going to... Okay. Um, but before I forget... Um, immediately after the Q&A, uh, the bookstore is outside. They're selling books, and Slavoj will, will, sign, will sign your book. Uh, Whatever you prefer for illiterate people, a cross or a finger? <laughs> <laughs> okay, sorry, please. Okay. Please. Lady is there. Wait, please. 
Hi. Can you talk a bit about the linkages between the rise of white nationalism in the United States and Europe? With the right of white? Nationalism. White nationalism. Uh And also, just to make a point, uh, just to make a point about the left in the U.S., they're not only focused on minorities, because many minorities are also in the working class. So they are... No, no, I totally support them. What I will say is this. There is only one implicit aspect of white supremacism that I, I wouldn't say I like it, but that I find of use. When they claim, we should take them more literally than they take themselves when they say there are other minorities, we are also an endangered minority. I know how they cheat here. I know. But that would be for me the true solution to treat white men and so on as just another minority. I find much more dangerous the liberal stance of... of uh, I often notice, and here it's another problem of abstraction, how false... You know, many left liberals have this position... The further you are from white male identity, the more you are allowed to, I simplify analysis very much now, the more you are allowed to assert your identity. If the First Nation, Native Americans do it, okay. Blacks, okay. Then uh, 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 Chinese, still okay. Italians, so-so. Germans, blah-blah. But if... White Protestants assert their... uh, Okay, now we'll say, but this is correct, because they are de facto hegemonic, and so on. What I suspect is that, nonetheless, this self-humiliation, this, we renounce our identity because we know if we assert our identity, it means direct racist hegemony. There is something false in it because, you know, I had a couple of weird experiences. For example, this really deeply marked me. A debate 25, 30 years ago in Missoula, Montana, where there were some politically correct white critics of white supremacy who were so brutally correcting some Native Americans there Like, no, you shouldn't call yourself Indians. And then a Native American guy who became my great friend said something perfect. He said, sorry, I don't want to be called Native American because it gives me horrible associations, like I'm Native nature, your culture, or what. And he said something wonderful. He said, I prefer to be called Indian. At least my name is a monument to your white man's stupidity. You know, you thought you are in India. They were, my Native American friends there, they were so sensitive against this false patronizing elevation of them. Like, they told me, one of them used this beautiful metaphor that he also almost gets a Joseph Goebbels reaction and draws a gun where somebody praises there, you know, like, we white people just uh, exploit nature brutally while they have a more organic attitude, dialogue with nature, before you mine a mountain, you ask the spirits of the mountain for permission and all that stuff. And one of them, it's a wonderful act of extreme subversion for me. One of them even wrote a text, he sent it to me, 
proving that um, Native Americans killed more buffaloes and burned more forests than all the white people <laughs> together. No, you know what I'm saying. Of course they were much better, but they detected in a wonderful way this hidden art. And let me conclude you with a joke which wonderfully makes this point. One of the best Jewish jokes, popular with Derrida, with all my friends. You know, in a, in a, in a, uh, in a synagogue, when do they meet? Saturday, I don't know when. Jews meet to talk, confess, I mean, declare themselves. So one rich merchant Jewish said, Oh God, I am nothing. I am nobody. I am not worthy of your attention. Then uh, the rabbi, big powerful figure says, Oh my God, also, I am nothing. I am worthless. Then a poor Jew stands up and said, Oh my God, I am also nothing. And then the rich merchant stabs the rabbi and said, who is this guy? A nobody, and he also thinks he can just say that he is nothing or whatsoever. <laughs> you see, this is what is false about those white people who just, who I'm always suspicious of how they pretend to be modest, but hidden beneath this modesty is a very arrogant position of we are, we renounce our particular position just to retain our grasp on, on universality. We can be judges of others. Otherwise, no, no, I'm here, a good guy, for example, in the debates about Black Lives Matters. This is a nice example of how uh, false, although it's obviously correct, is the Trumpian answers, not black lives matters, all lives matter. No, universality is here false. The lesson of all dialectics is that universality has always a privileged example which embodies it in a certain historical constellation. Today, if you want universal equality in lives matter, you have to emphasize black lives matter. So I'm not simplifying here. I'm just almost obsessed with this implicit, you know, when somebody humiliates himself too much, I always find it suspicious. What's his secret uh, profit in it? Sorry. I, okay. Yeah, don't make me use this thing. Please. Uh, <laughs> all right, next. We have, I think we have time for probably two more. Two more? Depending upon... But then well, at least allow a lady to go forward. Okay. <laughs> Ruth, okay. Not a lady. <laughs> Hi. Um, thank you so much for coming here. Thank you, Russell, for I see you. I see you preparing your knife when you begin in such a kind way. So please strike. Yes. <laughs> okay. So I have questions about, a question about two words that you've used, Jews and Trump. Um, first of all, not, not in connection. Um, first of all, you, you, you mentioned something like Nazis and Jews and also the Jews and the Palestinians. I think maybe it would be more accurate to say Israelis and Palestinians or that rather Jews and Arabs, if you're going that way. Yeah, I see. That's a nice point, yeah. Thank you. Oh, no, and I then will also try you... to answer it. Okay. Yes. One for the lady, not a lady. Um, and then the second thing is that you talked about Trump as this like ideal evil or something like that. I'm not sure what is exactly the word you use, but I agree with you that we have this tendency to say, oh, Trump, right? As if like something is wrong about him and then we don't have to look at ourselves. So can you talk more about this, this like separation of Trumpism? No, and sorry, I was not 
precise enough, I agree with you on both points. First, this ideal evil and so on, if I remember it correctly, then I think, first, we should never forget that the most depressing book that I've read, sorry, I'm beginning again, is a book on Nazi ethics. No, no, it's critical. A lady wrote it, and sorry, I forgot everything, I'm old, but she asks the obvious question. How did the Nazis themselves describe their own predicament? How did they experience it and so on? And you see some extremely false disgust, disgusting, but I'm not saying authentic, but almost ethical vision. They really convinced themselves that they are doing a great thing. And you know what's the most perverted thing in it? They openly admitted that they are doing horrible things, but then they gave a weird ethical twist to it. Their logic was, any idiot can be good for his or her country. It takes a true hero to sacrifice his soul to do horrible things for his country. So they made an ethical greatness out of the very horror. So in this sense, the sad fact is that Evil is always by definition or tries to be masked as, masked as good. But what I meant, maybe I forgot, is this. In every society, we have somebody who obviously offers himself or herself, usually it's himself in our societies, as easy to hate. People, like, and that's why I'm a little bit doubtful about all this liberal hatred of Trump. No, I do hate Trump. But again, as I said, don't simply elevate him into evil, but ask yourself what went wrong with liberal consensus and so on. We have to solve the problems here. Don't be too fascinated by, by, uh, by, the, figure, by the figure of the evil. And your first point was the... Uh, sorry, I forgot your first no, point. No, no, you answer it. That's no, fine. no, no, but I like it even more uh, to answer. What was her first point? <laughs> <laughs> Just about Jews and uh -huh. uh, the way you use you know, the word. It's, it's very interesting. Very interesting what you mention here because I agree with you that the whole point is so complex that on the other hand, I wouldn't even use the word Israelis because the problem is precisely how. Because you know, yes, that's why I use the word Jews. Because in my simple democratic notion, Israelis are citizens of the state of Israel. Everybody should be included. There are already in Israel, Israel. By this I mean pre-67 Israel. There are, I think, over a million or how much of uh, Palestinians and so on. So that's why for me the term Israeli uh, is not enough. And the trick of today's Israeli politics is something extremely sad. <clears throat> I'm not kidding. When I use the term uh, uh, Zionist anti-Semitism. What really worries me is how now Netanyahu is systematically making pact with European conservative leaders who are more or less even openly anti-Semitic, like Orban in Hungary, Kaczynski in Poland, and the implicit deal is this one. Let your Jews come to us, 
but leave us freehand there. And this is an old tendency among even anti-Semitic right. I was shocked to read, for example, one of the really evil figures, Reinhard Heydrich, you know, the architect. You know what he wrote in 36? He wrote, Jews are a great people. We wish them all the best in Palestine. We want to help them there. We just don't want to get them to have them here. So now today we have more and, and you find this, for example, who was that crazy guy? You remember Breivik, the Norwegian madman who killed 80 young socialists? It's interesting to read, I didn't, but some friends sent me translations, his writings, where he is anti-Semitic, but he says Jews are a threat only for us here. America, he said Europe is not so dangerous because Hitler did the job of cleansing them. America and England, there are too many of them. But he said in the middle of this, we should absolutely support Israel and so on and so on. And this combination, I find extremely dangerous, dangerous today. Sorry. I, no, thank you. Uh, okay. Uh, last question. I'm sorry. Don't kill me. I'm sorry. Uh, so thank you so much for uh, speaking tonight. He's guilty. The evil guy. Yeah. <laughs> <clears throat> uh, thank you so much for coming tonight, and also thank you, Dr. Spriglia. So I was watching one of your uh, Vice interviews uh, earlier today, and you were mentioning how uh, earlier with Iran, uh, there was sort of this uh, this influence of Western liberalism on Iran, which used to be a very progressive country, and you were saying how when America basically backed all these fundamentalist governmental organizations, it kind of brought the country back. So I was kind of wondering what would be the ultimate solution, and do you still hold that view today? Because this interview was in 2013, if I believe. I'm not sure. Sorry, if you... I, I'm not sure I got correctly to what I was referring. Of course, I, I, I referred to that uh, Mossadegh and so on when America organized a coup d'etat, uh, bringing Shah back in full power. And it's absolutely clear today, at least we know, that Mossadegh was just a moderate leftist social democratic nationalist. He wasn't a Soviet spy or whatever. And the idea is that this brought in the, uh, the imbalance. No, what shocked me morally, that's why I still have some sympathy for Iran. Listen, let's go to our preferred topic, human rights and so on. Iran is still much better than Saudi Arabia and some other countries. First, beneath this rather superficial oppression, Iran has an incredible intellectual life. They were so stupid, you will see the irony, to translate even 15 of my books there. <laughs> so I mean, there, it's an intellectual life. And, uh, and again, uh, uh, it's so hypocritical. Like, I think one of the greatest obscenity was when the uh, foreign minister of Saudi Arabia said that it's time for Iran to accept basic democratic standards. I mean, <laughs> statements like this make me an atheist, because if there were to be God, he should have with a lightning strike death. <laughs> so, so you know what I mean? Like, and also, I remember, I'm old enough, you are probably not, you don't remember, the uh, Iraqi attack on Iran, the hypocrisy of almost the entire world. As long as Iran was losing, they were silent. 
United States openly supported, we now know, Iraq. They were giving to Saddam not only poisonous gases, but even satellite images of where Iranian troops are. Uh, United States only protested when Saddam used these gases against Kurds, against his own people, and so on. And again, the public opinion started to worry even in the West with non-aligned countries, only when Iraq started to lose, to withdraw. Then they said, oh my God, we need peace, and so on, and so on. This is why I wrote a text then, which is a little bit crazy, I admit it, but which for some point rendered me very popular. Even in the ruling circles I learned in Iran, the title was in English, Give Iranians Nukes. Iranian nukes a chance, you know. <laughs> today, as today's situation, I simply, I'm such a pessimist, you don't know who is telling lies, who is manipulating whom about the present uh, conflicts. I'm just saying that, are we aware what is happening in the Middle East? That a new, I ironically called it, axis of evil is forming. Uh, uh, Egypt... Saudi Arabia, Israel. They are already openly collaborating. Are you aware that now it's no longer done secretly? Saudi Arabian military and security officers regularly go to Israel to confer. Saudi Arabia was even already three, four years ago putting pressure on Israel to bomb uh, Iran and so on. So this is, I simply don't know enough about the, uh, about the situation. I still, where I am still a naive guy, is you remember that green revolution after the elections. Mm. I was very involved into that one, making statements, supporting them. Uh, 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 the guy against Ahmadinejad who was cheated out, although he probably won the elections, and uh, 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 I remember that at that point there was a big attack on me that I am a direct agent of the CIA that they are paying me to make this statement and in my cynical attitude, but I didn't, it's too crazy, I'm so self-destructive, I wanted to make a, a, write a public letter to CIA like I'm supposed to be your paid agent. Well, fuck it, here is my bank account, where are the millions? <laughs> no, but again, you see, I, I try to be modest. It's so difficult in today's mess to orient ourselves. Because often, uh, it's horrible when a concrete local case where you see who is right is then co-opted into an international coalition which is not a good one. And the situation is so complex, but again, I have a great sympathy, not only, you know that even in Iranians are great people, even in philosophy, they have a couple from, uh, from 7th, 8th century till 16th century, they have a couple of incredibly uh, uh, productive top Muslim philosophers. Not to mention, not to mention cinema and so on. I mean, it's a, but don't lose hope. Not only there, but let me tell you something to conclude. It's wonderful. You know, even if I die, I will go there. 
I almost naively cried when friends told me. I have a couple of friends, a German, a Scandinavian, Swedish guy, who have some kind of an English language theater of all the places in Kabul, Afghanistan. Nobody likes them, neither the Americans nor the Taliban, but they get some money from the European Union and They told me incredible news, that in a country where nothing functions, total corruption, danger, there is among the young generation such an intellectual thirst. You probably don't know the name Göran Terboren, a Swedish old Marxist. They invited him to Kabul. They thought, you know, 20, 30 jerks will come. At his first talk, 700 people came. Rumor spread at his last, at his last talk, 2,000 people come. And people who wanted to debate Frankfurt School, Adorno, and so on. It's a, and in the other city, close that Bamiyan, you know, where Taliban bombed those statues. It's a city totally encircled by Taliban. So you have to fly there if you want to survive. But he also went there. In this small city, 800 people came. Young people. I mean, I have faith in this. I think there are intellectual miracles which are awaiting we, us. We should, the, we should end on that positive note. Because sorry? <laughs> <laughs> we should end Thank on you. That. Well, don't I, you will not get me. Yes, wait, wait, wait. You know when you are dying. But, usually, just before you die, It goes up, looks better, and then boom, no? I prefer this image, okay. No, well, because, okay, the bookstore, they have to close the table in 10 minutes. So if you want, so if you want to buy a book, um, they're right outside, but they have to leave at 9.30. But um, Slavoj will sign, will sign books. Um, I think at we should least just... he's honest and mentions this closing because, you know, which is the usual excuse when they want to cut short the debate of the leftists? I mean, they always evoke, there are some cleaning ladies who are waiting. <laughs> so if we go on, we are oppressing the working class. At least you are honest. Well, Thank thanks, you thanks again much. to Slavoj. So.